the light bulb went off one night and I had to have nachos. I had to have 7-Eleven nachos. And I, I knew that that they had changed the brand of their nacho cheese sauce because it was different. And it wasn't doing what I needed it to do. And I was like, it needs something. And, you know. Wait, what does nacho cheese sauce need to do? Well, it's got to be creamy. It's got to be spicy. It's got to cover the chips. It's got to, you know, it's got to be cheesy nacho cheese goodness. Okay. So <laughs> I added yellow mustard. And all of a sudden it became a different game because most of the cheese sauces are fat and flavor, heat, salt. But it's it's missing a certain amount of acidity or vinegar that helps round it out. Believe me, I wasn't thinking as sophisticated at that. At the time, I was like, I need mustard on this. Perfect. But anything that I eat, I actually do evaluate. And so kind of going through my my mental checklist on flavors and tastes, I really started to recognize the balance between fat and acid and then sweet, sour, salt, and bitter, and then spice and umami, and really tried to create almost this, this three-dimensional matrix. If you, re- if, if you remember like a Rubik's Cube and how the pieces turn and they, you can adjust it so that one side you know, is all red, all blue, all green, all white, all orange, after you mix it all up, all those colors are all over the place. If you think of that as like a way to crack the code on flavor and taste, and you know how to work that that taste Rubik's Cube, you, you unlock a lot of power. This is Chef Damon Hirsch. I met him in 2014 working at L'Academie de Cuisine in Bethesda, Maryland. He distinguishes the difference between a cook and a chef. A cook is the laborer, the person who does the cooking and works on the line. The chef, with a capital C, leads with their cooking, is a teacher, mentor, and the guide in the industry. You know, I take this with me no matter where I go, and I teach this to any and every cook that I have, and that is that inspiration and knowledge can come from anywhere. Don't think that you're above anything. Don't think that any food is beneath you. You know, I'll tell everybody that a grilled cheese sandwich is simple to make. But a good grilled cheese sandwich is really hard because you're balancing and you want to make it a balance of fat and temperature and texture. I mean, so all of that has to play together. And then you have to compete against uh, memory because when was the best grilled cheese sandwich you ever had? So if you're going to make a good grilled cheese sandwich as a professional, you have to be able to pull those memories out of the person that's eating it so that they can remember the best grilled cheese sandwich they have. But don't think for a second that you're going to make the best grilled cheese sandwich ever. So an example of that? Crab cakes. What's the problem with crab cakes? So I've been cooking for most of my career in Maryland, and Maryland is famous for crab cakes. Everybody knows somebody that has the best crab cake. So years ago I decided I'm not going to compete against that because I can't. What I can do is make a crab cake that is really good, so they say, oh, yeah, that was a really good crab cake. And then, if I'm lucky, I can get them to start talking about or remembering the best crab cake because that memory will be attributed to my crab cake. So if I make a really good crab cake and everybody likes it a lot, 
They're going to say, well, you know, that was a really good crab cake. It wasn't the best crab cake I ever had. I mean, my Aunt Teresa, man, she made a crab cake that was... And if they go down that memory lane, the catalyst was my crab cake. Mm -hmm. And so psychologically, if I prime that pump, it will always be attributed with a good memory. This is Mixed Until Combined, and this is why I want to talk to chefs. The whole experience of eating is at the core of their craft and their passion. Everything from the food, to the table, to the people and the community. They're craftsmen and women with deep culinary souls and minds rooted in their identity that mixes stories, influences, and experiences. When I asked Damon to be the chef for my pilot episode, he questioned being interviewed for this podcast because he considers himself pretty, quote-unquote, vanilla. And yet he's anything but. I thought, well, let me ask him how he identifies, how he would describe himself. I would say I'm a father of two and I'm a chef. What's your best dad joke? Um, <laughs> I don't know if I want to give it out. My best dad joke is where do you find a turtle with no legs? <laughs> right where you left them. <laughs> where were you born? I was born in Queens, New York, and I was actually adopted at uh, the age of three. So being adopted, do you know what your birth parents, where they were from, what they look like? Nope, I don't. I know my biological father was uh, part black. My biological mother was part Greek. That's about all I got first three years of my life I was in foster homes and uh, then my adoptive parents they adopted me when they got back from a trip to Greece my parents are amazing people they've been supportive my whole life and they continue to be supportive of me and my family and the choices I've made in this business uh, my dad is from New York he's a New Yorker um, he was born in Brooklyn, and my mom is uh, from Minnesota. She's good Swedish Germanic stock. Okay, so hi, my name is Tessa Hirsch, and I am Damon's baby sister. We are over a decade in age difference. So we did a lot of family dinners growing up. Um, my mom and my dad both cooked a lot. We did a lot of home family dinners. But at the table, when it was both my brothers, my sister, my mom, and my dad, we had major laugh attacks. That was a huge and consistent thing that happened in our family. But we would have major laugh attacks, and my sister and I would get into tears and hysteria. Damon would see me and my sister starting to get giggly, and he would just push us. He's super, super silly and loves getting the effect. I mean, it's interesting, right, because this is a chef too, right? Like, he loves affecting people. He loves bringing this, like, giggly smile thing, whether it's making us laugh at the table, whether it's the food that we get. Like, he he cares to affect people and get get the smile and the giggle and, and all of that. Like, he he looks for that, for the response from others. I have lots of memories around food with Damon. Like, we really enjoyed food in a different way. Um, 
so I have lots of memories of like being in the kitchen and, and or going out and like really loving food. When Damon came back from Korea, um, he came back with all of these spicy foods. He would make the hot, spicy Korean soup, and then we would have competitions. We would all sit around uh, eating the the bowls of soup to see how many bites of the spicy soup we could have without trying to cool our mouth off with crackers or water. He was, like, training us in boot camp, like, and it was so fun, um, and they were so spicy. It was just great. And yeah. I now, because of Damon, have a very high spicy tolerance and joy of spice. But um, when he became a professional chef, you know, the thing that I remember about it was it was another it was another way – at least at home, when he came back and would, like, cook something for us after becoming a professional chef, it was really clear that he really enjoyed the performance element of it. Like, there was this really great pride, and he liked the presentation element of it. Like, him presenting the food and him putting it out, like, that was – I could – there was there was something really notable about it in a way that I've seen him be – I think maybe no, I don't know that I've seen him be more proud of anything. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen him be proud of anything more than his food. So if food, the world, the joy and the laughter that revolves around the hearth or around the dinner table, fills Damon with pride, how did he discover that? How and when did he get to that point in his career as a chef? I didn't consider myself a chef until probably seven years after I graduated culinary school. Um, Why? Because I wasn't, and I think it's I think it's incredibly arrogant for people to say that they are, because you don't know. When you walk out of culinary school, you have a set of tools, and all that does is teach you to learn how to be a chef without hurting yourself or anybody else. Period. That's it. I learned the same thing when I learned Korean. When I learned Korean, I learned the tools to be able to learn Korean how it was really spoken. So book learning versus practical application of that knowledge are incredibly different and it's the same thing coming out of culinary school if you come out of culinary school and you think that you know how to cook you're a moron you don't you just know how to filter what you have now and process the knowledge that you're going to learn so you really can learn how to apply it he graduated l'academy de cuisine continued his culinary externship and worked as the sous chef at the occidental grill in washington dc but he sought to learn more so he left the Occidental and took some time off around the holidays. But come the new year, he gets a call from a colleague about an opportunity to open a restaurant in Baltimore, Maryland as the executive chef. So I drove up to Baltimore and I, it was like the 13th of January. It was lucky 13. And I got there at an 11 o'clock appointment with the owner and the general manager. I introduced myself to them. We talked for a little while, and they were like, okay, great, you're hired. And I, I kind of raised my eyebrows and said, do you want me to cook for you first? So what does a fresh head of culinary school, classically trained French chef make? Well, he makes the staples, pretty much exactly what he's learned straight from his recipe books. He made a seared duck salad with blue cheese, pear, and an apple cider vinaigrette. Some kind of salmon dish that he really doesn't remember, and so is true of many salmon dishes, and a filet mignon with a tasso and corn demi-glace with mashed potatoes. Their response? 
great. You're hired. Dude, I, I just graduated culinary school six months ago, and now I have to be the chef of a restaurant. I don't know what the hell I'm supposed to do. So I had a little bit less than a month to figure out what I wanted to do, how I was going to do it, and to implement it before we opened. So I had a little bit of money in the bank. Uh, I called my friend. I was like, hey, buddy, we're going to New Orleans. Because this place was going to be called Louisiana. It was fine dining by way of the Big Easy. It was classic Cajun meets white tablecloth. And I didn't know shit about Cajun food. I didn't know anything about it. I was classically French trained, but that was it. That was my sole experience. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was supposed to do. So I called my buddy. I said, we're going to New Orleans for 48 hours. I don't remember it. But we you don't remember ate, any food? We ate a lot. We ate and we drank and we drank and we ate and we had beignets and we had chicory coffee. And so there were a lot of really cool things that we took back with us, right? So, you know, we had chicory coffee in the restaurant and we did bananas foster table side. And I created my own blackening spice because, you know, everything else that was on the market just tasted either of salt or spice. What's your blackening spice? I'm not going to tell you. Literally, as I've gotten to know him and as I've talked with his parents and his friends, everybody talks about his blackened shrimp and grits. This is Damon's dish, his claim to fame, his party food trick, his ultimate culinary classic. And every chef has a dish. It's what makes them famous or gets them in trouble. It's the cornerstone or their legacy in their career. Or simply just a damn good meal that makes everybody pause and go, Mmm... You remember that shrimp and grits? One of the favorite things that I tell people is, or, or, or ask people is if they remember the episode of uh, Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote, where Roadrunner's racing down, Wiley Coyote's chasing right after him, and they run off the edge of a cliff, and they both stop in midair, and Wiley Coyote looks down, and he looks up at Roadrunner. And he holds up a sign says, what about the law of gravity? And Roadrunner holds up a sign and says, I never studied law. And he takes off. And Wiley Coyote plummets all the way down into the gorge. If you don't know that you can't do something, you can do anything. I, literally, I was somebody who knew practically nothing coming out of culinary school who had a lot of creativity, enough talent balanced with ignorance and would work really hard. And that was it. Nobody told me I couldn't do it, so I just assumed I could. And that's really carried through in my career. You know, the interesting thing about it is that there, we talk about comfort food, we talk about soul food, we talk about reconnecting with people's pasts. I mean, I was creating food that was inherently comfort food, soul food, you know, shrimp and grits, um, collard greens, um, uh, bread puddings, um, creme brulees, gumbo, and, and catfish, which are things that in a fine dining restaurant, how do you make that work? You, you, you kind of don't, right? But I did. And it took people's comfort food and put it in a way that it became polished and it became fancy, but it still kept all the pieces it needed to be comforting. And the strange thing about it was that it wasn't my comfort food. I'm still not sure how I pulled it off. But if that wasn't his comfort food or the food of his past, what is? Let's backtrack a little bit and talk about what Damon did before he got into restaurants. He graduated high school in Bethesda, Maryland, 
wasn't quite ready for college, so he enlisted in the army. He was stationed in Korea and became a Korean linguist based on his aptitude for language. And this was really his first time living away from home. Being a linguist, I hung out with a different group of people, and I was able to actually communicate firsthand with native, native Koreans. And I remember when I got there, uh, within the first couple of months, there's, there's a celebration called Chuseok, which is kind of the equivalent of Thanksgiving. And I was invited with a couple of other of my buddies to this woman's house, and she... She owned the bar that we used to go to to drink at, and it was it was uh, it was really cool because she cooked all of this Korean food that I'd never seen before. I had no idea what it was, and we sat um, on the floor at a low table, and we spent probably three to four hours just sitting there talking, eating, and you know, aside from the obvious things where the language was different and the food was different, it was Thanksgiving. Um, and that's probably where the first feelings of comfort in, in Korean food came from. How about comfort outside of Korean food? And what is it about comfort food that is such a beloved and universal concept? Comfort food is really about memories. And it's really about how you feel when you eat it. I mean, I think I derive a lot of comfort in food from the food that I make for myself. And it's not always necessarily something that makes sense, but it's something that fits the bill at the moment. So, you know, somebody's comfort food might not be very good. They may even acknowledge that, empirically speaking, it's not great. But what it does for them, what it gives them, that's where comfort food is magic. What's your magical comfort food memory? What's that thing that warms your soul, rosies your cheeks, reminds you of a special person or that special dish you hold so dear? I'm going to let you settle with that thought for a little bit. Now back to the timeline of Damon's story. Remember, he was working at Louisiana as the executive chef, and there came a point where he felt he was stagnating. And I get this feeling. It's really common among chefs and definitely understandable for creative people in any creative workforce. You seek to learn more or learn differently. Maybe it's a new style of cooking or a different cuisine, a new framework of success within a restaurant's business concept or design. Maybe you need a new mentor or a different style of leadership. Whatever it may be, you want a change and need a new perspective. So Damon left Louisiana and the role as executive chef to work as a line cook at Ristorante Tosca in Washington, D.C. I, I took a considerable pay cut and went down to D.C. And for about eight months, um, I got my ass kicked. <laughs> I mean, I le legitimately, I worked my ass off. Um, and it was great because it revitalized me and created a different set of sensibilities. So then going, you know, starting out classic French and then going to low country southern French. Um, you know, along the way, I picked up a little bit of Mediterranean and Greek and then kind of going down to Tosca, it was, it was Italian. And there was a certain sensibility and a purity and a beauty in, in Italian cuisine that I, I had never learned before. So I was soaking all of that up too. And I was, I was revitalized. I was ready to do it again. So he returned to Baltimore to prove his strength and cement his position as a chef in the local culinary landscape. But he also wanted a family. So in an effort to balance both his passion for cooking and for daddying, he expanded his career outside of fine dining restaurants into the world of restaurant consulting, 
culinary nonprofits, culinary education, and event management. And with 20 years plus experience, what's growth for you now? Growth for me now is legacy. So what does legacy mean to me? Legacy to me is taking talent, taking people that want to cook, that not unlike me 20 plus years ago are not quite sure where they want to go but they want to learn and they want the tools it's to give them the tools to teach them how to look at things how to how to assess things and how to um, analyze and process what it is that they're learning and then be able to turn it into their tool set i want to take them and teach them not just how to harness their passion but how to you know become wicked skilled become real forces to be reckoned with. I feel incredibly fortunate to be one of those people Damon considers as part of his legacy, to have him as a mentor that helped push me to see my potential, trust my talents, and rely on my skillful intuition. Specifically with Damon, I think about two years ago when we competed in the Mason-Dixon MasterChef competition. It's a local competition in Baltimore, Maryland, kind of like Chopped, where we were given a mystery basket of ingredients and a theme to cook an appetizer, a main course, and a dessert. But this is with 100 people, three judges, and only three hours. In the second round, I had put out the dessert, and I looked at it, and I realized, oh my god, it didn't have the chocolate sauce. And so, in 20 seconds, made the best chocolate ganache I've ever made. Then in the semifinal round, he convinced me that I could make helium-filled sugar balloons that we ended up floating over to the judges. All the while, I had caught the bug. I wanted to work in this crazy, chaotic world of creating and sharing food much of which was encouraged by Damon. But what I want to get back into talking about is identity. Remember when I asked Damon to describe himself? He said first, a father, and then a chef. You know, it's it's funny being a dad and being a chef. It's, It's, you're creating something. And it's so important as a chef to be able to create something new that people will love and consume. And... As a father, you have a much longer gestation period for that dish. But in the end, you're creating something that hopefully in 18 years is going to be well received. Mm. Yummy broccoli! Mm. Mm. Yummy broccoli! Belle, can I put some of this on your plate? Mm. Mm. Yeah, what is it? Delicious. This, imagine if you had pizza in a bowl. You take yeah, you take pride in, in the minute achievements and not so much in the in the recognition. You know, as a, as a chef, your name is attached to everything and you want to get validation for it. You want to get the good review. You want your name in the newspaper. You want to be written up. But as a dad, you don't need that. You're not going to get that. Let's play the ABC game. Should we start with snacks first, maybe? Mm-hmm. Okay. Who's going first? Me. Me. Youngest to oldest? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Being a dad is the hardest job I'll ever love. And at this point in my career, you know, I, I want to focus on them. Oh. I got three. I'm going to name hey, all three. I have two. Snickles or Snickledoodle? I got three. Um, Sour gummy bears, sour gummy worms, and sriracha. It's not a snack. But you eat it like a boss. You eat it like a boss. But that doesn't make it a snack. (laughs) That makes it a lifestyle. Yes, it does. 
I'm gonna go with salt and vinegar chips. Sushi! Sushi's not a snack? Yes, it's it a is. meal! I have seen you eat it as a snack. I have seen you eat it as a snack. Our family is super complicated, and it doesn't surprise me that Damon doesn't doesn't speak to his identity because the truth is, for better and for worse, we were not raised with a strong identity. And there are really important ways that that gave us so much freedom and confidence to navigate so many worlds, right? Like my parents in themselves, before even adding in the multiracial family that they adopted, my mom is like a blonde, blue-eyed girl from a small town in the Midwest, Lutheran, and daughter of two tailors. And then my dad is a upper-class New York Jewish, but like non-identifying Jewish, Ivy League educated physician. And just there, there's already like this really big mix of cultures and identities that we were able to identify with and were raised with a little bit of both of that. We got to go to the lake house and learn how to shoot a gun and fish and play pinochle in front of a sunset. But also we were like brought into an Upper East Side wealthy class area where we would go to my grandparents and it was a huge big mansion townhouse with chandeliers and like a girl who was a six-year-old black woman, but my grandma calls it the girl, which would like serve us bagels and lost on a silver platter every morning. So like that was just both of our identities and then we had our own identity in our family, but for better and for worse. My parents really didn't do any race identity formation with us. And I think Damon was the first of the multiracial family that we were developing because when I was adopted, I was adopted into a family of four children, a a multiracial family. But Damon was adopted into a white couple, and it was the 70s. So we, we didn't quite have like the like celebration of multiracial identity that happened like in a version of it in the 80s so you know it it means we all I think have this like freedom around our identity it doesn't limit us and we feel like a potential for self-evolution and we can feel close and belong in lots of spaces but also maybe never really belong I, I don't know. I'd be really interested to hear what Damon thinks about this. I don't. I feel like I'm the fat person in the family that talks about race the most. Um, yeah, I mean, so, like, outside of this podcast, he always talked about how, like, even fitting into the black identity, he never felt he could because... Like, yeah, we're, we're not. We're not black. We're mixed. It's a very different thing. We come from our white cultured family, but we're still experienced in society as black. And... We're both. <laughs> like, and it's yeah, a exactly. different thing. I don't know, Jordan. It's like, here's the thing. It's no, it's no surprise to me that Damon, who craves deep self-expression and sharing himself with the world and, share, and connecting with others, is going to find a medium in which to do that where race and identity are not the first thing that is seen. He gets to set, stay in the kitchen and send out this deep, beautiful self-expression and self-creation that is uh, truly gets to represent everything that he wants to, to show the world and connect to others. But people don't know when they look at the food what race the chef is. 
yeah. and that, that would be a very satisfying connection for him. That is not a surprise to me. There's so much complexity to identity. And here we're talking about self-expression or physical representation, influences of nature and nurture, maybe what somebody considers himself and what the world might perceive, and certainly with Damon, who he is behind and in front of the line. When I asked him about how he balances all these different factors into his profession and craft, he said, I don't really consider them factors in who I am and what I do. They're absolutely real things. But they are not there for me to worry about. I am, I am the amalgam of all of my experiences. I am the repository of all of the influences that I've had in my life. And there have been so many. Uh, but who we are is defined by what our footprint is, whether it's social or uh, philosophical or culinary or emotional, whatever. That's your footprint is what's left behind you. And that's what people see. You know, people can look at me and see me one way and not have any idea of who I am or what I do or how I do it. The very beginning is how do I identify? I identify myself as a father of two and a chef because that's what I am. For me, there's a very simple, basic rule, and that is everybody has to eat. Everybody's got to eat. You have to eat and you have to eat. That is the equalizer. I don't give a fuck who you are. And if you're going to sit down at my table, I'm going to feed you the exact same way. My job, my chosen profession is dictated by the simple fact that the truth is in the food. So to me, a lot of that other stuff doesn't matter. Sure, if I'm exposed to these things, then I pull them in and it gives me the tools to be able to even broaden that feeding to more people, almost attacking them on a more visceral level in their core, like creating that grilled cheese sandwich or that crab cake, that, that, that southern soul food, that incredibly reduced French sauce, that perfect olive oil balance with, a, with an acid, the, 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 the making a kimchi that would, would make somebody, you know, from Korea who, whose family's been making it for years, like, oh, okay. You know, and, but it's not about me making it. It's about what they get from it. I want to give them opportunities to look at themselves. I want to try to give them themselves. Thank you so much for listening to the pilot episode of Mixed Until Combined. I can't wait to interview more chefs and get into more kitchens. There's a few people I'd like to thank. I've realized I'm the kind of person that needs to work, maybe only really can operate with a team. And so with that said, I'd like to thank a couple different teams. The first team would be WAMU, who gave me the opportunity to create this podcast. With that said, I'd also love to thank the cohort of the pod shop, Daisy and Ponzi and Emily who led us, Nichelle, Roger, Laura and Victoria, JQ, Ruth and Patrick who all worked alongside me to get our podcast and our stories told. 
I'd love to also thank my family, my ultimate team, the people who have been by my side for forever. And lastly, I'd like to thank my teammate, Damon Hirsch. First and foremost, for being the voice of this first pilot episode and helping me succeed to actually make this happen. But also, for being a wonderful boyfriend. Shit. Cozies. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> I didn't understand. She said yeah. chips. And I said cookies. Because in my mind, I was like, it's either chips or cookies. It's gotta be chips right? and cookies. And I knew the first thing she said, I was going to say the opposite. As fast as I could. Love you, baby. Love you right back. <laughs>